This is The Squad Room, a podcast that takes you behind the scenes of the 21st season of SVU. If you have not watched episode 2112, we advise you to do so before listening. Hello and welcome back to The Squad Room, the official Law & Order SVU podcast. I am your host, Anthony Roman, and this is episode 2112, The Longest Night of Rain. Wow, that was a heavy episode. Lots to think about. And on the program, we have Ed Tucker himself, Robert John Burke, and writer Peter Blauner to discuss this very intense and emotional episode. After that, guest star Holly Robinson Pete talks about her brief but moving portrayal of Rachel Wilson. And finally, real life NYPD special victims detective and longtime SVU technical advisor Tim Hardiman tells us how he helps to keep the show feeling authentic. All this is happening right here on The Squad Room, which is brought to you by NBC and Wolf Entertainment. We're here on The Squad Room with Robert Burke and Peter Blauner. Thanks for coming on today. Thanks for having us. And I think people are going to be really upset about what happened to Tucker. And I'm wondering where the initial idea for that came from and why you guys went that route. Well, it's kind of interesting. I think both Bob and Julie Martin had the idea that we would take on this very serious issue of uh, police suicide. And it's an unusual subject for this show, which usually is so focused on sex assault and victims of sex assault. But one of the things this franchise has done is reflect the reality of what's going on. And at the moment, we're in the middle of an epidemic. And given the fact that we have Bob, who's really one of the few actors who really can completely embody a New York City police officer convincingly, I really thought we have a great opportunity to tell a genuine, authentic, and compelling story. I think paramount to the franchise in as much as it's geared toward sexual assaults and special victims, that, you know, nobody wants to speak to this epidemic. And so the seriousness and the gravitas of the message, you know, we could say suicide is a, it's an unspeakable thing. Well, given the history of the show, they speak to the unspeakable and they shed the light. And, you know, we see what Mariska does through her work. I didn't see any downside when I think solely about the message. Do you know what I mean? So if the decision is made, hey, let's, you know, Tucker must go. Let it be with message. Let it be to that end, which, you know, maybe somebody will think twice or reach out for help. You know, let it have some purpose and and some positive repercussions. Yeah, I think that's a good point because this is a rare chance that we have to tell a story that works both as a story, but also does have an immediate public service aspect and neither takes away from the other. Because, again, the show has created a a great forum for women to be able to speak about these experiences. But it's a different matrix for police officers who are so much in this culture, and also true of people in the military, where there's a stigma against being able to speak about this. It's almost considered to be a vulnerability and in some cases perceived as a weakness to even address the issue. So if we can create some kind of opening that people begin to have the conversation or continue to have the conversation in a a public way, then I think we've done something good. I think in this episode also that in as much as it deals with special victims, you have a special victim within the ranks of the New York City Police Department character, Rachel Wilson, 
But then the way it is spoken to, there's light that has been shown on the aspects of what it is for a police officer to come forward. Do I go to the department psychiatrist? Do I call my own psychiatrist? Finn's character says, hey, I know what you guys are doing. If I am open about this, I jeopardize my job. So you have all of these different aspects of what it is to potentially come forward and ask for help. Yeah, they take my gun, they take my shield, it's my identity. Yeah, and it's, it's, I think yeah. it's very, very, very well spoken to within the you know, confines of this episode. And that we get to do it with a character that people know and care it's about. Yeah, 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 yeah. Well, no, but I was also talking about Bob. Right, right. As someone who really dramatizes this issue and speaks to this issue. It's somebody, you know, that I think people who watch the show are invested in, in a real way. And when you have this idea that you're bringing Bobby back and this is going to happen, that comes before the story. I mean, the crime is almost a B story in this episode in a way. Am I speaking properly? Well, there was, there, there was a bit of a challenge to, uh, to work a crime in. Well, yeah. I mean, because we're making the decision that the show is really going to be a, this tragic story about something that happens to Bob's character. But it still has to be within the context of Law & Order SVU. And so we kind of go into the journey of this story with the suicide of the female uh, police officer. And that had to connect to the larger journey that Bob goes on in the episode. How long does that take to come up with an idea that could weave all these things and still connect and be an episode of SVU and tell his story? Is that a longer process than a regular episode that you're writing? Well, maybe it took a little more research than I usually do for the show, a little more firsthand research, which I always do when I write novels. But usually when we do the show, Warren's been very good about bringing in people to speak to us. There's a lot of clips. But in this case, I went out of my way to try and talk to cops that I know, and Bob knows a lot of police officers also. So this is like a very personal issue as well, and also a police psychiatrist. And eventually I began to focus on the idea of what if one of the officers who committed suicide was a woman? And once that fell into place, that sort of gave us a way to bring it into our world. And are you concerned at all what the public's reaction to the death of this character will be when you're writing or acting? Or how much do you think about that? I think about it a great deal. I want to honor the fans who are so faithful in as much as they're watching a show that's, you know, very heavy, important issues. So when I'm going about it, I want to honor police officers. You're calling these men and women on the worst day of your life. There's a lot of scarring that goes on on these people. Um, We see this very, very, very fluid situation with respect and disrespect and honor and dishonor against the law at the highest levels and at the lowest levels. And so to go about it, as Peter spoke to um, specifically and accurately, you know, there's obviously the layering of my character being sick. And at the same time, is he covering? Is he at the mercy of symptomatically of what he's going through? I thought when the script came to me that it was just very well crafted. And then it makes it easy for me to just go about and do the drama. And hopefully the bigger message than, you know, leaving Tucker or dying is that the fans and the people who appreciate the show and the content of the show, you know, things spread out. And these people can affect changes in their lives that hopefully, you know, reach out to the police officer who lives next door to you. Tell your husband who is a police officer, you know what, honey, you don't have to go to the department. Go here. You have to have the hands available to reach out to. And it can be simple to reach out. But it's just that there's no point where the message can be pushed enough as far as I'm concerned when it comes to somebody taking their life. 
it's all hands on deck. And I think that the show has been very faithful over the years to a very difficult topic, special victims. And this shows us that, you know, the police officers themselves can become special victims. That's very well said. And also, I hope at the end of the show, people will avail themselves of uh, some of the social media that we're going to put out with the crisis text numbers that we'll put out and the hotline numbers that we'll put out in the websites that will give people access to the kind of help that they need. Do you worry that people will be so concerned with the fact that you were Olivia's love interest, the fact that you're such a well-loved character on the show now, you weren't initially, that the message will get lost because people will be just wrapped up in the drama of your character's death? I hope they won't. The show has, you know, such a long existence that there'll be obviously, you know, different perceptions, and different reactions and different responses. The reactions are going to be, whoa, hey, how could this be? We wanted it. But, I, you know, response is the root word of responsible. The responsible response would be, I hope one or 10 or 100, you know, people don't take their lives. That I would recommit to, again, reaching out to a neighbor or just being aware, you know, uh, the awareness is where we begin to erase problems. We have to be aware of them first. And also, uh, we're trying to connect the immediate human emotional story to some of the larger stories that go on. One of the things that we haven't talked about is that part of this episode really relates to 9-11 and the aftermath, which is something that that Bob has personal experience with. We're both New Yorkers, and we're both affected by that, and Bob can speak to that issue a little bit also. I had my best friend whose bracelet I wear. He was the captain of Ladder 3, Patrick Brown. He fell in the line of duty on 9-11. Subsequently, I'd say 10 of my friends, a guy I've known since I was four years old, succumbed to 9-11 cancer. Again, shedding light on it in the drama. Even when the 9-11 cancer came in to the story, I said, why not? Let's do that. You know, you're getting a lot of information here in the one episode, but at the same time, it's happening. It's continuing to happen. I work with an organization called VetHack, and it's for awareness of veteran suicide. Why is this happening? Well, we're starting to find out the reasons why it's happening. But not, it's not a glamorous issue. It's not a romantic issue. People don't want to deal with it. And it's going to continue to happen. You're going to have more soldiers dying by their own hand than in a combat situation. That's unacceptable. So to me, anytime I've been on this set or part of these stories, it's been an honor. You know, just alone with what Mariska has done with you know, the rape kit backlog, I was here. I'm aware of special victims. I had no idea of the gravity of that situation. A show that has taken on a social responsibility, this is just part and parcel of continuing thereof. Well, I'm really glad that Bob was available to play this role as well, because bringing up these issues in another context could feel exploitative, and I didn't want that to happen. And so it was very important to me that it would be someone who would be playing the role, who would know what he's talking about. Right. When you're constructing this episode and you have three suicides, sexual assault, 9-11 cancer, is there ever a concern that maybe there's too much in this 42 minutes for people to wrap their head around? Yeah, especially since Tim Hardiman, who is the technical advisor on this, said something as I was researching this, which is very important. And it reflects some of the research that I'd done with veterans for a book I'd written a few years back, which is that often it turns out not to be just one thing. 
PTSD is often connected to, I guess we use a different term these days, uh, post-traumatic stress injury, I think people talk about now. It's connected to a whole network of issues. So how do you honor that? How do you tell the truth of that while still telling a story that has commercial breaks? Right. Uh, uh, so a lot of thought went into that, and Warren and I worked together very carefully. There must have been a lot of decisions, like the second suicide, I guess, maybe could not be in there. So, like, you're hammering the point home yeah, without also, losing the story. Right, but it's also reflecting the reality that's right. going on right now. I mean, we have had clusters of two and three suicides within a week and a half here in New York City. So it didn't feel like an over-the-top operatic thing. It just felt like reportage. Right. And the thing that was still mainly driving the story was the emotional crux of the matter, which is the end of the love story between Tucker and Benson. And where do you think this leaves Benson? Are we worried about her at the end? Do you think she's going to be okay? I mean, what, how do you wrap that up in your mind? I think we all have times in our life that things that happen haunt us and stay with us. And uh, that's part of what makes us human. And that's, you know, everybody has some rain in their lives. When you're in Act 4, does Tucker know what he's going to do? I think the way I've interpreted it is when I'm in Act 1, I know what I'm going to do. Could three suicides happen in a week? Absolutely. Can shedding light on this situation help? Absolutely. You know, I really haven't had time to really think about the romantic side of, you know, Olivia Benson and Ed Tucker in as much as they have both moved on. And Ed's experience has been radically different than hers. She stayed on the job. He's retiring. Uh, she's healthy. He's sick. This is life. This is the way it goes, especially in the police department, law enforcement. I do understand your point and accept your point about, you know, maybe there's a lot crammed in, but at the same time, could it, I asked myself, could it happen? And the fact of the matter is, yes, it could. And, it, you know, in that cluster situation we talked about. Yeah, and one of the things that uh, we want to echo in the script is the sense of the history of the relationship between Tucker. Which I think is beautifully and, yeah, done. Yeah, yeah. yeah, That's interesting to me that you're saying in Act 1, you know what you're going to do. I believe so. You yes, know, do you well, see it that way? He's the man. He's the captain of the role. <laughs> contemplation of it. There's a scene where I say, I just was told six months to a year. You know what I mean? And I'm, I'm not going to put my wife through this. I'm just, you know, as honorably as, as I can possibly be to myself and others. But it's just a very, you know, it's an existential question, obviously. But uh, at the same time, you know, those are private things the actor figures out for himself. But again, going back to Mariska, is I've always just enjoyed acting with her. She's a rush to act with. She's 110% there all the time. She's constantly trying to make it better. And that's been enjoyable over these years, you know, our arc of uh, the relationship. Obviously, you were not a well-liked character in, in your initial time here. And then you had this long romance. When you look back on it, what's the memories you have of that period? Well, playing the bad guy is always so much more fun. <laughs> um, you know, the writing was always such that um, it was very concise. You know, the perception here is one of your detectives has done something wrong, and I'm here to investigate it. And if you have a problem with you know, dirty cops being investigated, well, then you have a problem. 
but I just really enjoyed playing this guy. I enjoyed, you know, like people randomly in New York telling me, yo, leave my Olivia alone, you know, and I was like, <laughs> I'm, I'm doing my job well. And, you know, back to the days of Chris Maloney and everything, and, you know, he's such a powerful guy and a powerful character, and to have to go up to, against him, and it was wonderful as an actor. It's, you can't ask for more of that kind of, you know, head-to-head conflict. And again, always perfectly, as far as I was concerned, written. And then when Marishka said to me a couple of years ago, you're going to be my love interest, I think I said something like, that's going to be a slow boat to turn around. Um, <laughs> and I said, that won't work. And she said, no, it will work. And the writers and the producers, they made it work very subtly. And then there's life. She was determined to keep her job. She was at the top of her game. She was being you know, a new mom. Uh, did she have time for this guy? No, was the answer. You know, And I thought it was very wise, that character, to say, you know what? I'm just going to keep this simple. We're going to let this go right in. That's life. That's a a very educated adult decision that she came to. It was at my (laughs) expense. (laughs) But at the same time, I had just the greatest time. Listen, these are the realities of, I think, you know, lots of different occupations, but certainly first responders, certainly the police service, the fire service, uh, a lot of trauma. It's heavy, 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 latent with trauma. And how do these people get through? How did they, on a daily basis, show up to help another person? Not asking what their race is or their creed or their, you know, just if you need help and you dial 911 and your child's, you know, you have a special victim on your hands and you call this unit, they're going to show up, irregardless of their their baggage and their past and, and what they're going through at the moment. You know, I'm interested to see what the episode is after this. I am too. So you wrote episode one with Ian McShane, right? Which yeah. was a very different episode. Is um, one more enjoyable or easier than the other? I would say the fans of the show are looking to the show to tell a certain kind of story, which is a story that addresses this very important issue of sexual assault. This is an unusual episode for the show in that we're kind of outside that realm. We're addressing a different issue, and it's a very personal issue in a lot of ways. As I said, Bob and I are New Yorkers. I've lived here all my life. I know a lot of police officers. I've thought a lot about veterans and suicide. It's a chance to really delve deeply into character and the things that make you strong in some ways and make you vulnerable in other ways. And as a writer, that's what I got into the game for. So in the scene where Olivia says, you just did something you've never done to me, you lied to my face. You're not lying at that point. No, I'm having a memory lapse due to my um, medical condition. Right. And do you think it's important for the audience to be, what's up with Tucker right now? Like, is that, you're kind of tricking us a little bit? Like, what do we gain from that? I think some of the best characters are the ones that we don't know. very well and who have a kind of air of mystery about them and when we don't know what they're going to do from one moment to the next, uh, that they're a little untrustworthy. Listen, the the show has Marishka as the beating heart of the show and it has Kelly and it has Ice and it has Peter and Jamie and people know where they stand with those characters. But to bring someone in who we think we know and he's acting in a way that we don't expect. Well, I think that's pretty compelling storytelling. Yeah, and there are some people in that scene who do not 
trust you or believe you, right? Some of the other detectives are like, mm, he's not. how do you play that as an actor? Like, you're not lying. You're losing your memory. But she's accusing you of lying and you don't really say that you're not. Is there a lot of layers to that or is it easy to do? No, it's, it has to be layered. Having known people with dementia, Alzheimer's, people who are having trouble with their memory and recall and times and date, um, I see certain characteristic manifestations. There's an innocence almost. There's frustration sometimes. They can't remember. So I did make some choices about how I was going to do it. And I wanted to, you know, rubbing my head. And, um, but at the same time, uh, you hope it's subtle. You don't want to let anything out of the bag too soon. But at the same time, as an actor, as an artist, it's, it's just great stuff to... Yeah, it was great because I was like, what happened to this guy? And, you know, which is, and is that an act out? Is that a punch out at that scene where she accuses him of of lying? Yeah, yeah, that is the act out. Yeah, you've just done something you never did before. Right. Do you have to give? As far as she knows. Right, right. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Do you have to give a little more when it's an act out? Do you as an actor say, this is an act out, I need more? Or do you approach everything the same way? I notate it. (laughs) That's all I'll speak. That's all I'll say. <laughs> I do notate it when I'm studying the script, you know. But at the same time, you're not like bookending or, you know, uh, uh, punching per se. A lot of times in my business, less is more. and Let them not get up to the refrigerator or press pause, you know. Is that a big difference between TV acting and film? No. No, it should all be done the same as honestly as possible. Was there anything just, um, because it's such a heavy episode, anything fun about being back or anything that you guys had a laugh or something behind the scenes that you could tell us about? I'd like to just say to the fans who, when I was obliged to join Twitter (laughs) and I saw that there was this world there and there were these very strong supporters of the show who had strong opinions you know, they were against Tucker, they were for him and everything. But I just want to thank them for A, the interest, B, the support in the show. If they hated the character, I loved that. If they loved the character, I loved that. I love that they loved the show. I love that they followed the journey, the arc, in terms of Marishka's work with Joyful Heart, the rape backlog, the documentary, uh, all of this strong, life-changing stuff that's come out of this show. Um, I've had the best time here, <laughs> Well, we've also got a really great cast for this episode because mm. uh, we've got Bob, we've got uh, Bill Irwin, we've got Michael Gaston, mm-hmm. who's a great actor. We've got Holly Robinson-Pete, who's terrific, and a bunch of other really first-rate people. Mike Smith, who's a great director. And so just being around that many talented people is a blast. So you guys are having fun. I, just, I hope. With an episode about suicide yeah. as much as we can. Now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You feel like you're doing something important and you hope that the fans and the people who support the show will absorb it for the greater good. I think this is going to have a big impact on people, and I think it's an outstanding episode. And thank you, Robert Burke and Peter Blauner, for coming on and talking about it. Thanks Thanks so much. Thank you. Holly Robinson-Pete appears quite briefly in this episode, but it's her character's actions that really set the story in motion. We talked with her about this. We're here on the squad room, and I'm sitting with Holly Robinson-Pete, who's playing Rachel Wilson in this wonderful episode. Thank you for coming on. Oh, it's my pleasure. And just starting out, how did it come about that you came on SVU and are in this playing this part? Well, I literally got a call from my agent that the part was offered to me. 
I have still not discovered whose idea it was. <laughs> All I know is I jumped at it. I couldn't wait to come to New York to play with these folks. And as an actress who's been around for many years, you love it when someone offers you a part and doesn't make you jump through hoops and they respect the body of your work. That said, I thought, wow, like this part is pretty intrinsically different from some other parts that I've been playing lately. But I was honored to have the opportunity to be a part of this ensemble, especially during this season. <laughs> right, legendary season. Just you're touching on, is it difficult to play a part like this? I mean, your scenes are very heavy in this episode. Yeah. Well, what's interesting is that I started out on a show called 21 Jump Street, and I was young. I was in my early 20s. But we did some pretty heavy subject matter. My character had been raped. My character had been, you know, there are all kinds of issues that had happened. And we touched upon some pretty heavy things that were going on in high schools back in the day. And these were the, this was the late 80s. So I started off really in this business doing drama. And it's funny because once I did five years of that, five seasons of that, then I went into a sitcom called Hanging with Mr. Cooper and I had to prove I could be funny. Right. So what I loved about being offered this part was that they understood the body of my work and know that I've done more serious television, dramatic television, and I can do both. So to say, hey, will you come play Rachel Wilson? Uh, and when I saw the subject matter, I said, you know what? I would love this opportunity. Just getting into the role and, you know, obviously you're just a harrowing scene. Yeah. You're very early in the episode. Yeah. Going to a really dark place that mm -hmm. basically the whole episode revolves around your actions. Mm -hmm. um, as an actor, what do you do to get there? Well, the subject matter of suicide is extremely prevalent. And it's impacted me in my life. I've known people who have taken their own lives. I've been very supportive of people with PTSD. I played a cop <laughs> on Jump Street. And I had to go be part of a lot of ride-alongs. Our late executive producer and creator, Stephen J. Cannell, legendary, gave me my start in this business, you know, insisted that I go on a ride-along with the LAPD 77th Precinct. And if you know <laughs> anything about LAPD, that's a really tough neighborhood. And at 21, I went on a ride-along, and I really got a sense of what cops go through. So I've always been, I think I'm, once you play a cop on TV, you kind of always feel like you understand that world a little bit. And so I think that the subject matter is something that I can relate to and something that I have a lot of empathy for. And I'm really glad to be helping shine a light on it. What's your relationship in this episode with the Reverend? My relationship or Rachel's relationship with the Reverend is he gave her a place to be. Just she's at rock bottom. And he gave her a place to stay in the basement of his church. You know, she's in a 12-step program. She's trying to get her life back together. And during those times, you have very few angels on your path that are just down for you. It's my guess. We don't have a lot of Rachel's backstory, but it's my guess that she probably exhausted all of her relationships and uh, now really only has one person to rely on, and that's the Reverend. He's there for her, and he supports her. So packing the gun it was in your character's mind before they got there. Running into Benson was not a trigger for it, but you had some kind of relationship with her in the past. That yes, running into Benson and the relationship uh, Rachel has with Benson really just reminds her of how she really just got treated so poorly. It just 
she looks at Benson and she sees Benson as the person she might have been had NYPD protected her and not betrayed her. And Benson seems to have real affection for your character as well, I think. She feels somewhat bad that she didn't keep in touch, right? I think Benson feels badly that she didn't keep in touch, but I think it really underscores how many times we overlook the signs of what happens. And when we're on our own journey to success in life, you know, we can't always be worried about everybody else around us. At some point, you got to be a little selfish and take care of number one. And so I think that's part of what Benson is connecting with, that, man, I didn't know it was this bad. And, you know, the people that Rachel is accusing are people that Benson's, you know, tight with and has relationships with. So you understand the different layers of relationships of people that can do really bad things, but you can still love them and care for them, and then people that are suffering that you don't always tend to. So then you throw the drink in Tucker's face. Why exactly do you do that? The drink gets thrown in Tucker's face because I think she wants to put everybody on notice that she has been the victim in this situation, that NYPD only looks out for people they see as their own. And this was a group of, a club, basically, that she was kicked out of. So she kind of rolled up into the club and said, I want you all to know what you did. She doesn't say exactly what it is. Yeah. You know, when she later on, when she's, you know, in in the car, she says, you know, she could name names, but it really doesn't matter anymore. It's, It's come to the end. And she lost this battle. Why doesn't she name names? I don't think she names names because I think she wants them all to sort of think about themselves and think about playing, what part did they play in this? Right. And doing a little bit of research for this part, you know, I find that people that do this that end their own lives, I think all of us tend to, especially those of us who still are here and the victims of this, you know, of suicide, we all, we all look around and go, you know, what could we have done? What could we have done? But the person that's committing this act is trying to send a message and trying it really in some ways to justify that. There's so much bitterness and so much anger that Rachel has and so much unrequited, like she really hasn't able, been able to get any of this out and has sat, you know, stagnant in it for years. In my mind, she has. Well, it's written that way. Yes. So the reality is that she wants everyone to know that everybody played a part, whether you conspired, whether you protect the attacker, Everybody had something to do with this final outcome. That's very interesting writing that by not naming names, you're casting a wider net and making people think. That's what was so intriguing about this script. I mean, the script is so phenomenal and there's so many different layers. I mean, what they've done is at the beginning setting up so brilliantly what happens. And then, of course, you unpack all these details and how you got to this, which is the brilliance of... SVU, right? And one of the reasons why I'm so glad to be part of this 21st season. Did you have a lot of conversations with Peter Blauner, the writer? or I had one conversation with Peter. I'm familiar with his work. He was the first person I saw when I landed at Chelsea Piers. He welcomed me. We just happened to be in the same room at the same time. He told me he couldn't believe I took the part. And I was like, what are you talking about? Why wouldn't I? (laughs) And he was so glad, and I was so glad. And we had that was my first sort of connection. But I've known Mariska for so long, and the chance to play with her was something I, I was never going to pass up. Before we started recording, you on this note, you were telling me um, you ran into some people last night who couldn't believe you had not been on Law & Order yet. Yes, I went out in New York while I was here to a tribute to Diane Carroll, and it was a lovely life celebration of her life and pioneering. I wouldn't be on TV as a Black actress if it wasn't for her. Right. So um, 
got to spend some time yesterday in a room full of amazing actors. Everyone was there from Lenny Kravitz to Cicely Tyson. It was an awesome tribute. Samuel L. Jackson was there and he said, what are you doing in town? And I was like, I'm doing SVU. And he's like, you just now doing Law and Order? <laughs> 21 seasons in and you just now? And then he started saying, I did that back in the day when I was with, with Chris Note. And he did, you know, so <laughs> yeah. he was, you know, typical Sam. He was hilarious and he just said, wow. And, and as a matter of fact, I was surrounded by a bunch of actors and they were all pointing at each other. Well, I did it back in this right. season and 10th season. At first. I'm like, listen, better late than never. That's okay? right. That's um, right. And that was one of the reasons why, you know, I'm so glad to, to be able to be here. And, and by the way, I waited for the record-breaking season. That's so right. hello. Yeah, you did it perfectly. <laughs> Holly Robinson, Pete, thank you so much for coming on The Squad Room. You did a wonderful job. Awesome. Thanks. Tim Hardiman has been the technical advisor on SVU for many years now, but this may be the heaviest episode he has ever advised on. I sat down with Tim to discuss this in more detail. We're here on the Squad Room with Tim Hardiman. Thank you for joining us. Great to be here. And Tim, I would like for you to tell us your job title on SVU. I am the technical advisor. Out of all the technical advisors, I'm the law enforcement technical advisor. Aha. Uh -huh. So they come to you with various questions about what can or can't happen. I uh, talk to the writers sometimes when they have an idea of a script, what they want to do, how they would get there. Then I get a copy of each script and go through it and sometimes find little errors in verbiage. Sometimes they'll use a cell phone rather than a radio or a radio rather than a cell phone. Some of the uh, vernacular, some of the slang that we use is off. And sometimes I know that there are only about 30,000 people who will get it because it's very precise to the NYPD, but we try to keep it as accurate as possible. When did you become part of SVU and how did that happen? A therapist who had worked for the Brooklyn DA's office when I was the CEO of Brooklyn Special Victims moved over to Law & Order SVU as a writer. She would call me with questions. Her friends would call me with questions. And then uh, one day they called and asked if I, this is when the writers were based in L.A. They asked if I would go out to L.A. and speak to the writers there at their writers retreat. And I guess they liked what they heard. When I got back, they uh, offered me the position. So every episode you're involved in, no matter what the storyline is. Yes. In, some, I, in I, some capacity. Most of the time, I'll confer with the writers before the script and go over some ideas and, like I said, how to get from A to B. Sometimes they'll call me and say they want to do something. I'll say, you can't really do that that way, but we could do it this way. Then I get the script and read it and check for errors in police procedure. Like I said, uh, the jargon we use. Sometimes I give a character an inappropriate rank for what they're doing. I'll catch little things like that. And once or twice a season, depending on what the scene is, I'll come out to the set and go over some of the uh, tactical issues that we'd have, maybe if it's a hostage job or an interrogation or something like that. Has that happened at all in season 21? No, I haven't been here. I haven't been on set yet. Only, only to be on the squad room. <laughs> yeah, only to be on the squad room. Um, let's talk about episode 12, which is obviously a very, very difficult and heavy episode, even for a show like this. This is one of, if not the, well, maybe Dodds. But in some ways, I think this episode is even darker. I think so. I just want to get a sense of what your feelings were when you first heard this story. And I know you were actually 
involved in the storyline before there was even a script, and maybe talk about that a bit. Well, there are two intersecting lines here. One is the number of people who are becoming sick and dying due to exposure at 9-11. And the second is the spate of suicides that the NYPD experienced over the last few months. I've been advocating for a 9-11 story for a long time. It uh, events kind of overtook us and the bills got passed. And I think over the last year, a lot of awareness out there has been raised. But I always thought it was something good that the show could do. And then we started getting hit with the suicides. I've talked to some people in law enforcement. And up until last year, we would average four or five suicides a year in the NYPD, which is certainly four or five too many. But then in the last few months, that number doubled, that rate doubled. You never know why. Um, Suicide in police work has for a long time been a problem, maybe as long as they're a policeman. The awareness of work-related stress, post-traumatic stress disorder, fighting a war for 18 years now, uh, something good came of that because in the world in general, post-traumatic stress injury, as being referred to now, it's not a disorder, it's the same as injured as if you broke your arm or got shot in the leg. It's yeah. an injury. So the fact that our service members, veterans coming back, can stand up and say that they're being affected by this, I think has then led to police officers saying, yes, it is an issue. And I think in the last few years, you've seen the recognition, acceptance of that really grow but yet we still keep losing cops. You lose more cops, I think, to suicide than to gunfights killed yeah. by adversaries. Prior to the interview, you said something to me about you thought the way the show would handle a suicide based on the type of characters they were using to tell the story. And maybe just repeat that. Tell uh, that. I spoke to Warren, Julie, and Peter, who wrote the episode as they were fleshing this out. And my suggestion was, I said, you can't introduce a character in scene one, act one and then have them commit suicide in Act 5. It's got to be a character that the audience is invested in. If the show is going to send any sort of a message and present the pain that a suicide causes to all the people left behind, it's got to be somebody the audience is invested in. And uh, I think they made a pretty chilling call here. Yeah. What do you think the reaction to Tucker's suicide will be? I think that a lot of fans are really going to be outraged, disappointed, sad. I think a lot of people held out hope that he and Benson would get back together. But what I would ask them to take a step back and think about is to the extent that this show portrays real life, and I think it does that as well as any scripted show out there, if you're upset about losing Tucker or Benson losing Tucker, think about how the cops and the cops' families feel when we lose a real person somebody we were friends with, somebody we worked together with for 20 years. So, yes, this character has been around a long time. There was a romance there, and now he's gone. But ultimately, he's a character. And Bobby Burke is still doing very well. <laughs> yes. I think that's just really brilliant. And it was something I've been kind of trying to pull out of everyone involved. But the way you wrapped it up, I think, so succinctly is like, Yes, it's going to hurt for everyone to see this happen to Tucker, but that is really the only way that people could almost slightly feel any of the real impact that it has on people. And I was thinking about some of the things that happened in the show where Ice is talking to a psychiatrist and he's very reluctant because he's saying, oh, you know, it'll be used against me. Why would I tell you anything? 
Um, what are your thoughts on something like that for police officers and detectives? That's always been the stigma about, number one, this is a profession where we help people. We don't ask for help. The second thing is that it has always been viewed as a career ender. If you go in and you say you need help, the first thing they're going to do is take your gun and then forever going to be labeled to the rubber gun squad or, or whatever it is. Again, I think that's changed. And as somebody who's retired now for 10 years, I can tell you there is life after the job. And life and taking care of your family is much more important than whatever professional considerations you have. But the mindset that Finn is in is realistic to you. That is 100% accurate. Yeah. And that, that mindset is still out there. I hope that as things change, number one, cops get their priorities in order and say it's more important to get healthy than to worry about my career. And number two, and this is changing, and I, I read a lot on this, and it's changing around the country, where departments are not having a zero tolerance anymore, that departments are realizing that somebody can have post-traumatic stress injury or some other issue that they're going through that could cause them to reach out for help. And after they get help, the whole point of getting help is to get better. And once they're better, they can be great, fully functioning police officers again. And there are examples out there in the real world now, they're out there on the uh, circuit, going to conferences, spreading the word. That has changed, without a doubt. And I know ranking people in the NYPD, it has certainly changed within the NYPD. You saw Commissioner O'Neill talking about it just as he left, that we're here to help. It's a family. Every graduation or promotion ceremony, Commissioner Shea, Chief Monahan talking about it, this is a family, and now a member of a family with 40,000 members. Everybody's here to help, and it is no longer a career ender for somebody to ask for help. It may even help them because when they're going through whatever those issues are, they're probably not performing at peak. Well, Tim Hardman, I hope you can join us again down the road. we got a long season ahead of us, and it's always good talking to you. We've got a few seasons ahead of us. That's right. That's right. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. So that's a wrap for the Squad Room. Next week, Jamie Gray Hyder is here hanging with us. Please subscribe to the Squad Room wherever you get your podcasts so you don't miss a thing. As always, we want to hear from you. We love hearing from you. Follow us on Instagram at NBCSVU and at Wolf Entertainment and on Twitter at NBCSVU and at Wolf Ent. The Squad Room is hosted and produced by me, Anthony Roman, and it is executive produced by Elliot Wolf and Warren Light. This episode was recorded by Joe Tisdall, Adriana Narat, and Jessica Damari. Post-production was handled by James Asciutto, and we want to extend a big thank you to Victoria Pollock for all of her help. As always, The Squad Room is brought to you by NBC and Wolf Entertainment. We'll see you next week. If you or someone you know are in emotional distress, call the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline at one 800 273-8255. It's free, confidential, and available 24-7.